therapeuten gewoon een goed signaal dat er nu eens een keer echt iemand optreedt. Dan hebben we het veel mis zien gaan de laatste weken. Racism in football has been hitting the headlines lately. This episode, we go behind those headlines to dig further into the issue. Yes, and we will do so by discussing two cases, the first of which is what now can be called the Moraira case. So on November the 17, 2019, Ahmed Mendes Moraira, a football player playing for Excelsior in the Dutch second tier, received racist chants during an away match with FC Den Bosch. We won't repeat those chants here, but there were the usual references to Blackpeat, to Sinterklaas, children's songs and other things you'd expect in the Netherlands. The chanting reached such heights that the referee decided to call off the match after just 29 minutes. A huge call, in my mind. The event sparked a national discussion that spurred policymakers to renew efforts to combat racism. So I, I sort of wondered, was the event an unusual exception, or does it reveal broader tensions beneath the surface of so-called Dutch tolerance? Yeah, it, it seems like it, right? The um, Dutch government and the, the Royal Dutch Football Association uh, are introducing new measures to punish and prevent these acts going forward. Why do you think this more serious response came now? Yeah, that's one of the questions we'll address. Why now? I mean, it's not just Dutch society. This issue of racism in sports is pervasive throughout Europe. Right, so it doesn't stand on itself, of course. Uh, what about, for instance, Romelu Lukaku, the Belgian football player playing for Inter Milan in Italy? Just like Moraira, he received racist chants uh, from rivaling Cagliari supporters recently. But here the interesting thing is that his own supporters, so from Inter, started to quite outrageously explain that it was North European countries that had the real racism problem, that their jeering was only meant to intimidate the player, uh, as if that can't be racist, and that Lukaku should see it as an honor that the supporters felt he was worthy enough a threat to be the target of their jeers. What an honor. Yeah, quite shocking, no? Yeah. Yeah, his, his own supporters. For years, FIFA, the International Federation, has been promoting anti-discrimination, anti-racism campaigns, and rules on racial quotas are discussed. Oak even proposed adopting America's Rooney Rule, drawn from the National Football Association, which stipulates that you must interview people of ethnic minorities for coaching and leadership positions. Point is, there are attempts by the International Association to tackle this problem. But that proposal has also led to backlash. This is Unsettling Knowledge, a Utrecht University podcast where we, Rachel and Matthijs, uncover and explore traces of empire, colonialism and Europe's colonial past in the present. In this episode, we begin our ongoing series of discussions about race, empire and sports by digging further into the Moraira and the Lukaku cases. We talk with John Oliveira, the Director of Public Access Broadcasting Amsterdam and Chair of FAIR, a pro-diversity football organization that combats inequality and promotes societal change and social justice through football. And with Irina Bloom, she's a lecturer and researcher at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Uh, she works on political protest and racism in sports media in the USA and the UK. We began by asking them if they were as surprised as Dutch football player Georgino Wijnaldum said he was when hearing of the Morara case. John, perhaps first. Oh, I was not ladies first. Okay. <laughs> no, but I was stuck. Um, Georgino Wijnaldum, so a, a player in the national team, he said, I was surprised that it happened. Were you? No, not at all. If we're talking about Georgino Wijnaldum, he's a player of our national uh, team of the Netherlands and a player of Liverpool. So that's one of the reasons why he's a uh, high profile player. And he was given a, like, a response like he was surprised. 
well, that this was going on in the Netherlands. And um, and he did you believe him? Yes, I believed him. Of course, why would he lie? Jorginho uh, uh, Wijnaldum is a uh, player from Suriname descent. He's a black player. Uh, he used to play at Feyenoord and through different channel came as a talented player at uh, Liverpool. But the thing is, if you're in an environment and you're a high-level player, there can be a chance that you're not being exposed to racism. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So the thing in the Netherlands is, there's a lot of racism going on from grassroots to, um, say, in professional level. So, no, I wasn't surprised. And there are numerous examples that this is going on. The thing is, it didn't uh, hit the media yet, not at this extent. And that, well, I'm, I'm not... I, sh- I shouldn't talk too much. <laughs> no, but let, let's move to that question uh, soon. Why did the media now? But maybe first, Irene. Was I surprised? No. But that's probably because we understand that the incidents i don't really like talking about it like that uh but of racism that takes place in sport of course is a reflection of what goes on in society therefore not a big surprise no i think your hesitation with incident is because it's not just one incident right this is a an ongoing process this has been paralleled in stadiums in other places in europe too you didn't ask me whether i was surprised (laughs) or not but i think People who follow football at the club level especially have been seeing these things uh, happening. And so perhaps it's not an incident. It's more of a widespread phenomenon or a process. The thing is, I think if you ask a general uh, fan who visits the stadium, who won't recognize this. I think this, this is the real debate. I fully agree with what Irene was saying. It's it's a reflection of society. It's a, we have to be honest about that. But acknowledging this... This is one of the big problems with which Netherlands has. Do we acknowledge that there is a structural problem if you're talking about racism? It's not a new debate. I think what's happening right now is that because there are some structural incidents in Italy, which got a lot of media attention because of high-profile player spoke out, Lukaku, we've been seeing that in the press quite uh, frequently. And we've been saying, yeah, but... That happened in Italy. Can happen here in the Netherlands. And now someone says on national television, do we stop the game if something like this happens? So you speak out. It's not a safe environment to play as a player. So you're depending on the referee. So what does the referee do? And you have to understand there's a lot at stake. I mean, we're talking about safety and all that kind of stuff. How do you contain the people? All that stuff. There's a, you have to understand that all comes down to one person. It's not a minor thing to stop it's the game. It's not right? a minor thing to stop the game. Every listener can imagine. Now there is a public uproar going on. In Italy, nobody is really emphasized on that specific. Part. But outside, so UEFA, FIFA are now saying, like, listen, you need to have a safe environment for the player. Now, zooming back to the Netherlands. Now someone says on national television, he says, like, hey, listen, people are calling me all these kind of names and says that he was upset. And that's an understatement. But he so says, more rare, right? We're more rare. So he, yeah. he says it's really eloquently. And the coach from the opposite team downplay this whole thing. And that happens on national television. So this couldn't be discarded. So that's one of the reasons why it's 
became a serious case in the Netherlands. So you're saying the reaction from the Den Bosch coach is what set things in motion? It was his reaction that he was downplaying it on national television. And that was the debate on every news show. Well, I I saw this. It was that um, he said that this player was being pathetic. Yeah, uh, or exactly. Or something like that. And that was shocking to me. But also the fact that there was initially a denial by the club that these chants had been racist or had taken place. Afterwards. And then and the, the uh, club had to apologize. Exactly. So the case only became bigger. PR-wise... Yeah. Bizarre. And I wondered if this makes a difference. That is why it's happening now. Is it that we have cameras or that players are speaking out? And just to get a little bit of history in here, I mean, that's what I do. Uh, but there have been players. I think uh, the first black player who played for a European national team, Andrew Watson, uh, played for Scotland in 1881. Uh, national team scored a goal. They beat England. Some of our listeners will be happy to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure he captained the team, actually. It was not until the 1930s that you begin to see black players on national European teams. But I know it's been happening at the local level for a long time. There was a player, Harry Heinen, who said he had not experienced racism. So why now? First off, to, to pick up on what John said as well, I think there is just currently a massive momentum to to respond to these things. More and more players are doing it and talking about their experiences. I and feel not, like... Not just in the Netherlands. And not just in the Netherlands, right? We have Raheem Sterling as well in the UK, who received so much support for coming out and saying that the media was overtly racist towards him and other players as well, which generated quite a positive debate, you could say, in the UK. And it helped that Nike was even doing a Copernic campaign in the UK. Yeah. It, it, it all yeah. helps to, to yeah. show that, hey, listen, there's something going on right here. Yeah, there is the momentum, right? And there can be different reasons why this is happening right now. I think perhaps social consciousness is improving. We don't know. Social media helps people who are not necessarily a part of the predominantly white media industries to give those people a voice and share what they think and counter and participate in the debate about what we should do, um, both as football fans, but as players on the field as well, and what you can say and what you cannot say. Political aspects matter as well. You talked about Svarte Piet, right, Rachel? Which, of course, is a historical problem. It's perhaps rude to say to Dutch listeners here, uh, but in my opinion, yeah, a very uh, racist tradition. And in the U.S., we see the Black Lives Matter movement also generating a big space for people to say that this is not okay anymore. Yeah, just to um, follow up on this, I think that social media is a big, big, big difference compared with, say, 10 years or 15 years ago. High-profile players got, like, millions of followers. We have to realize that they have... a alternative voice and that's one of the reasons why i fully agree with you if we're talking about power structures and we're talking about media it's really clear that some voices are not getting the same attention and now you have to understand if uh lakaku says something he's got like million followers saying like hey that's not okay and that's been picked up same as Reem sterling so there are now different media outlets out there where they show their voice and explain their view and this is really a massive change compared with 10 or 15 years ago what, what, what do you two think so acknowledging the situation and having these discussions through social media is vitally important in combating this but then looking at the response from the dutch football association mm-hmm. so they they said okay we're going to do some things right we're going to start a campaign we're going to do more camera surveillance and we're going to launch an app to report 
racist abuse in stadiums. That sounds very different from having a, a debate on social media. What do you think of those measures? Will, will they work or is this something, <laughs> something different they're doing? Uh, uh, a few things, because you have to understand the position of an FA. Um, uh, and, and the FA has got like a few resources that they can use. They organize. But by, by the way, just quickly, I, I translated it. I was saying football association, referring to the Dutch football association. Yeah, but exactly. the same might apply to, to the FA in the U. So, sorry, go on. Yeah, but the, <laughs> I think there are a few things going on. I think in the Netherlands, we still believe the solution lies in having a campaign. I think this is underestimating the problem. Second of all, the only reason why they're mentioning an app, because we have a problem with reporting. And that is one of the reasons why we don't hear it. If the reporting is that the whole flow is broken, then we have no idea what we're talking about. So there's a lot of things going on on amateur or grassroots level, in um, a professional level. If people don't know how to report, you have to understand from FAIR, we do the monitoring of... Champions League and Champions League games. And how do we do it? We monitor with, I call it, vrijwilligers. Volunteers. Volunteers. Ah, so simple <laughs> word. And we use volunteers and, and we make reports. Independent from the UEFA. The reason why, why this system works is because they are focused on what's going on on the field. You know, that's a massive system. But if you want the public to be part of this and you want them to be eased with reporting this kind of problems, if the public is mainly white in the audience, who's going to report that there is some conversations going on? So this is one of the things that you, we need to realize. I think that the reason why the FA needs to step up this game, one, that is for the FA. Say the Premier League from the Netherlands are an employee as well as well as the clubs. So in, we're talking about a safe environment to play in. So that's one. And second, we need to realize that this is an uh, this is a felony. I saw you, Irena, when Matthias asked, are these uh, structural or governmental legal measures going to work? I saw you sort of shaking your head. I was, I was shaking. <laughs> I was shaking my head at the at the campaigns. Uh, I think that awareness is great, and I think that conversations are great. But there have been campaigns for many years now, perhaps a bit more uh, strictly. I'm a firm believer in there needs to be consequences, and there needs to be Agreed. rules, punishment even, right? There has to be a zero-tolerance policy, yeah. is my perspective on that. I think awareness and discussions and campaigns only go so far. It only reaches people that are interested in the message. Thank you. <laughs> I fully agree. We're, we're getting an amen over here. Well, I mean, a lot of these issues actually also resonate with the Lukaku case. John, you were talking about just in general, a white public might not be motivated to report on the racism they see. Or Irena, you were saying, well, in some ways they need to be hooked into this discussion anyway. They maybe need to be alert to it. Perhaps that is happening with consciousness raising. But in the case of Lukaku and the, the extremely passionate fans that are called the Ultras in Italy, 
I mean, they know, you know, they have been, they know, what? Uh, they their, their know that they're being raised, racist. Just, yeah. They, they yeah. are aware of what they're doing. Uh, and these fans have been sort of discussed. The club is, is also aware that these fans constitute a problem. So this is, I guess, one of the cases where it's interesting to me, what is everyday racism? What is just maybe people not really understanding or caring? And what is more systemic, uh, these fan groups that perhaps align with harder ideological lines? So what's the question? Yeah, so I mean, I think that was Matthias's question. What? How much of it is uh, our question? How much of it is just your everyday punter going along to a football game? And how much are the people who are engaged in these racist chants and behaviors, actually that is an ideological feature of their lives or a kind of structural feature of their group? And, and the, the, the question is, what base. do you do then? Because consciousness racing is, is clearly not going to help with, with these fans. Well, right? we've got rules. The thing is, they, uh, are they being enforced? And this is the whole problem, even in Italy. So uh, that's why the Marrera case is not so much different than from the Lukaku case. It's about enforcing. Is the FA, are they doing their job properly, yes or no? And I think um, um, uh, Italy's got like a historical background, specific if we're talking about, uh, say, racism. There are more black players now. I know there is a whole debate going on about immigration. So, you know, I mean, I'm not saying everybody is right or left. For me, there is a clear responsibility with the FA, with the club. And even if we're talking about the ultras, the real problem is who's got the power, the real power within the club. I think there's a totally different other discussion if we're talking about Italy. What is the role from the ultras within the club? What position do they have? And, and they, they do have a strong position. That, right? That's an understatement. Yeah. This is one of the, I mean, Irene, you've been in the UK. And you see what kind of position does the fan groups have within those. You can't see this debate apart from enforcing from a club perspective. So if you're talking about a safe environment for a player, that's why the Lukaku case is really important. Because maybe we should ha mention <laughs> what happened there, right? Because other than in the Netherlands, what, what struck me most in this case is that those ultras, they started explaining to Lukaku what was racism and why what the opposing fans did was not. Can you imagine such a thing elsewhere? Or is this specifically... Italy, looking at both I mean, of you. Yeah. Shaking her head, actually. <laughs> I don't think so. But I think what's also important to realize is that there are two very different things. In academia, we talk about different forms of racism. I would say overt racism in the stadiums and then these more covert forms of talking about people and the racism that takes place in football stadiums and the cases that we've talked about are very overt forms of racism that we would like to say don't take place in everyday life as much as back in the day. The racism according to the literature that we see in everyday life is a more deeper rooted structural problem in society and it's reinforced by old stereotypes that haven't been broken down. I'm going to draw a parallel again to the UK and Raheem Sterling. When he spoke up this time, at least, he talked about the media representing him in a very negative way as opposed to another player who had done uh, similar. similar things, yeah. right? We talked about this case where Raheem Sterling bought a house for his mother. That was apparently not okay. Him going out, spending his money like that. And another player, a white player, doing the same was just this 
saint son uh, doing something great for his mom, right? This is something I would say we can attribute more to the way that we just stereotypically talk about white players and black players in the UK. Those stereotypes and ways of talking about players have to be broken down to effectively change how players are perceived and also hopefully these overt actions in stadiums. And you just mentioned media. And yeah. I think that's in Italy a, a, a big ordeal. If you see how uh, this Lukaku case was being portrayed, and it's not in itself, there have been many incidents afterwards. And you see how the Italian media takes up on this. So what, what kind of things did they do or say in, in Italian media? No, it, I call it downplaying. You know, it's um, the difference between, let's say, the Netherlands is at least it gets the attention. Not as widespread as I would love to, but in Italy, it's not really clear that Lukaku is then the victim. Do you understand? And this doesn't help. The media minimize it. Or... Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. what I call downplaying. And that's, yeah. this is, and that's why having your own voice is so important. For me, social media is media. So for them to have their own voice and, and it's being picked up outside, otherwise we wouldn't have heard it. Yeah, and you can bypass media channels. Actually, I have a, exactly. a number of friends who, who talk about black Twitter, right? Black yeah. people on Twitter. And, and for all social media's harms and difficulties, it is a democratizing force in that you can bypass the mainstream media channels. I am reminded, um, actually, of the way many years ago in New Zealand rugby, a famous player Jonah Lomu uh, used to be portrayed as very ferocious and brave and strong and masculine, but passionate and fierce warrior player. And his white colleagues were portrayed as smart and strategic and intelligent. And I think this is some of the kind of language and stereotyping that Irena was talking about that reinforces perhaps some of these more structural things. And that goes back to a long historical tradition, actually, of ways that we think about black people and white people. And we won't go into that history now, but I do think the media perhaps subconsciously or consciously picks up or, on or those Or consciously. Do you, do you know what the Italian Football Association did in response, the, the campaign they started? Yeah. You have heard of it, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have a constantly debate with the Italian FA. I was there like one and a half months ago with FAIR. And just quickly, what, what they did, I don't know if you've seen the, the you mean image. the monkeys in the... Yeah, so they had they monkey had a, They uh, had an Italian, posters. no, yeah. they had an Italian uh, artist, artist asked, uh, who is specialized in certain kind of, uh, of art, and his uh, signature was uh, monkeys. So they got like uh, three different kind of, same monkey with different kind of colors, and it says no to racism. Yeah. make the link with monkey chants and this the so implicit it, message being we're all monkeys uh, but hey <clears throat> yeah. it was it wasn't you know it's a case in itself I don't and, and it's I know but that's the thing I mean you can't <laughs> can you call it tone deaf or or, no, or no, no, uh, history blind I don't know combat but, racism I mean, with yeah, racism what, I don't what, know what, what are the idea your was. thoughts about this the, the first reaction because this is probably the first time that you see it yeah I haven't seen this before <laughs> this was like we we really had the first time I saw it I was like are they serious where's the camera I mean, so for our listeners, we'll have a, a picture of this. Uh, it is a very obvious, uh, yeah, monkey face that yeah. that has say no to racism. And 
obviously the historical associations between black people and primates and ways of portraying them that that emphasize these features yeah. are pretty damaging and have had long term it's the very racist effects. abuse that Lukaku uh, yeah. suffered so yeah. They're, they're, yeah what what i found interesting is more how do we get to the solution this is probably yeah. probably one of mm. part of this uh, podcast as well we have a d- discussion with uh, with the fa's and different kind of fa's and it's about education and i know this is maybe it sounds really simple but the thing is i think this is the heart of the root of the problem is that all these stereotypes if you want to undo them we need to show them and give them other examples and give them tools in order to understand why in this specific example we're talking about monkeys that that is wrong but why it is wrong and the dutch fa is the same thing there are so much work needs to be done on this specific level i think that that's where the real solution lies but that's education Irene, no, something no, to no, add oh, to that. I'm, oh, no, wait, we're not finished. This is <laughs> okay, the first no, point. No, hey, listen. Sorry, no, no, because uh, otherwise, it, it, if it was that simple, I mean, maybe I'm not being clear enough. So an FA has enough tools to enforce. So that's one. But are they really doing it? If we're talking about racism and discrimination. Two, education is the backbone. Hmm. And education for kids. Let's start with kids because I believe that if we're talking about elderly, forget it. That's always a lost generation. Sorry for that. Sorry, listeners. But that's, you know, if you're a really believer, then you need to be open. But if you see what it does with kids and what kind of impact this already has, that's where the future is. We got like education kits for kids and that's for Europeans. So that means that we want FAs to use this so they right. understand. So FAIR wants this. Is it no, it's, it, you know, you have to understand, it's not about that we want it. I think that the FA should want that. In, in order do to they have at mind. this point? Yeah, some are open. I mean, this is where they are called progressive. They are called progressive. From a European standpoint, UK, the Netherlands, even Belgium, France are even called progressive. From a European standpoint, if you're looking, to, for instance, for the Eastern countries, there is a more work to be done. So that's that's already new to me to hear the Netherlands feature as relatively progressive on these issues. Why are you surprised? I seldom have the impression that we're on top of these things in the Netherlands. In the Europeans, no. I mean, if you're looking no. at from Eastern Europe, you see like far right or it's a huge, huge problem. If you no. Uh, but we have our fair share of far-right parties as yeah, well. Yeah, no? but it's not in, in perspective, for instance, mm-hmm. what's going on in Hungary, Poland. Uh, if you're looking at our monitoring reports, and that's the incidents we're talking about, then that already shows what's going on in Russia. It's a totally different kind of problems than we have, for instance, here mm-hmm. at the progressive the Western part. Irene, where does the US fit in, in this spectrum? Ah, uh, it's such a <laughs> different... <one> together. <laughs> well, it's a different spectrum to just place somebody in. But there are other factors at play, right? I don't know much about the, the Eastern context, I will say. But there are different things that matter. Patriotism, for one, is such a more... Well, 
I guess we could say important thing in the U.S. It's, it's so a comparable with nationalism as what we have around here. If we're talking about the Eastern, perhaps the, the upcoming from the the right that's do with nationalism, perhaps. they're taking our country, taking right. our values and you know traditions, and that's what's going on around here. Yeah, it's comparable for instance. It will be, but again, when you say it, like I spoke about Raheem Sterling and the response that he got from the media was overwhelmingly positive, where they say we acknowledge there is a problem. Many media channels or professionals say it's not us, but we know that it's there. Yeah. Um, where in the US, yes, sure, there was much support for protesting athletes like Colin Kaepernick, but there was also lots and lots of criticism because the whole action of saying there is a problem in society, people understood as a criticism of their values and the whole point that it was also directed at the flag perhaps made it even more difficult in the US because of patriotism and nationalistic feelings. The debate is, of course, open and it's talked about and has been talked about for much longer than I would say here. Yeah, we can call them more progressive in that sense, but there is so much resistance. My initial feelings about the Raheem Sterling case is also that there was not much resistance. It became an open conversation very quickly. Uh, there's another, I think, important factor if you want to compare US with Europe. US is a, is a country of immigrants. Yeah. And this is important. So there are a lot of different kind of voices. I mean, you got like black media, you got Latino media, you got we we have that in in the states. So that means that there are, there are different kind of voices as well. Also, and I would just add, there's a black population who have been there for as long as white settlers, and there's exactly. a Native American population who are indigenous to the land. So that becomes then a different conversation. You can't necessarily say oh, they came over here, no. <laughs> you know? You oh, can brought say, over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can say, oh, they are criticizing our great nation. You know, yeah. how dare they insult exactly. the flag, yeah. which has been said exactly. many times about Kaepernick. And of course, his point is he honors the flag by expecting it to live up to its promises, which yeah. are inclusion and fairness to all yeah. people. So you're right. There are very, very many differences. And I think that sense of all in together in America and having a pre-existing black population on the soil feels different for Europeans. Maybe. Well, the thing is, I think we learn quite a lot from that debate as well. Let me give you an example. We, we organized, I think, seven years ago in a conference about uh, the glass ceiling within football. And it was during the 125th anniversary from the Dutch FA. That means the whole world came over because there was something to celebrate in football. It was a joke. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so um, we as FAIR, we had a debate about LGBTQ+, women, about quota, say, non-white within, uh, within football. An example I wanted to give is the Rooney Rule. That means giving the possibility to apply for a job. Only the possibility. One out of five, if I'm being correct. Arim, I'm looking at you. But you have to be invited for an interview, right? Yeah, we invited for an interview. Yes. One out of five. Yeah. That's all. Only the ability to apply. So we, we thought, wow, we have a problem within a European football if we're talking about black coaches. And nobody sees that as a problem because look at the field, we see 30 or 40% of the players are being non-white. So, hey, there is no systematic problem if we're talking about power in football. During this which we felt like, let's apply the Rooney rule. Let's see if we can apply. Well, none of the European FAs were open for this. Wow. Only the UK. And then we're talking about the second division, I believe. Right. We started it. 
Right. Right. There are black coaches, so this is not a question. They're excellent coaches, but they don't get the possibility to to be a part of the whole system. To coach at the top. To level. coach at the top of the level. A Rooney rule, which is nothing, even such a simple thing, is a hard thing to to get implemented within the FA. Well, I mean, you probably. I think this is where we can clearly see the links to empire still, yeah, right? We exactly. talk about how black leadership and coaches rising up, regardless of ability, is not really a possibility. But for work, for labor, for exercising your physicality, that's accepted, right? That's what we can use. There's lots of literature writing about how these links can be made to slavery, where wow, yeah. where players Agreed. are indeed still exploited. Exploited, and they might have the financial liberty they did not have before, but still we talk about them in the terms of the literature as new slaves, as $40 million slaves who still have to abide and follow the rules from these white leaders or white owners of the industries. Actually, I've been in communities where using the word slaves for people who are not, in fact, enslaved can cause strong feelings. Mm -hmm. But but I yeah. get the analogy of $40 million slaves, and I can see the relations of power that you're laying out so clearly there. The bodies on the field are okay to be black. Mm -hmm. The controllers of the money and telling us what to do mm -hmm. and who get the sort of ultimate responsibility yeah. and high pay for that responsibility and credit. Which also, if I can add, links to the stereotypes that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. We have evidence that shows that we talk about white players as clever as understanding the strategic. game leadership strategic yeah. and largely the black players are talked about in terms of physicality they're yeah. fast they're strong so this puts you in a very specific role in yeah. terms of, of your job as yeah, well and, and our research which we done by dr bradbury uh, jakob sturkenberg mm -hmm. showed that 96 percent of the whole european staff was white and male in mm -hmm all leadership positions, oh my goodness. 96%. So just to give you an idea how the power structure really works. And perhaps you won't create change until the behind the scenes and the leadership is also diverse. And yeah. does this have to do with, because I'm always wondering if we talk about racism, we talk about those stereotypes, we talk about those power structures, right. is the idea that the power is part of the story lost on some people in governance positions is it part of the measures that these associations bring forward? It seems not. I think it depends very much where you look. I, I think it does. From my experience in the UK, there is a big willingness to make changes. There is an awareness that there is issues. We want to change. But doing that seems to be the difficult part. Yeah. Um, I know that now people are being hired into these big media companies to be in charge of inclusion, in charge of diversity, as we like to call it, right? Yeah. And in the end the spaces remain very white. So in my opinion, at the backstage, at the production process, it's a matter of simply hiring more people from different backgrounds and not just white men. Yeah, <laughs> but this is the big debate because in order to get more inclusive and diversify your, uh, your work uh, mm -hmm. space means making space. Yeah. Move over. Yeah. And this is the hard thing. Yeah. I mean, if you're affirmative in, action in the Netherlands. Uh, I, I, well, <laughs> let's let's not even get me started. If we're talking about affirmative action, we've been saying that for the last eight years that we want women on the board level. We're not even talking about ethnic minority or ethnic background. No, we're talking about women. So mm -hmm. balancing the equation. Last year, our minister said, "Well, it's clear that nobody is really enforcing. Now we're going to enforce it." 
So I think... Um, for women, right? For wi- this specific women, but only just to give you a good example how policy is the next step. We can talk wherever what we want, but if the people who are in a position are white, male, um, 50 plus, I'm 49, I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, 50 plus, then, well, what do you expect? Because they want people that look like them on this kind of position. And that's the same as we see within football. And football is not different than what we see in society. Thank you for that, because actually uh, we are going to bring this uh, fascinating discussion to a close, but I sort of want to um, do a follow-up episode. But you ended with people want people who look like them. Yeah. Something that I wanted to ask about, which is modeling and representation. And so I was talking with Irena and Matthijs before about Mohamed Saleh and how there's this chant, we should all believe in Allah because Mohamed Salah scores goals. I forget the exact chant. But I think modeling and seeing people who look like yourself for these younger viewers is mm. maybe also part of changing this paradigm. It is 100%. Thoughts? Uh, no, kind of I, for me, I mean, I do uh, quite a lot of uh, children projects. When I grew up, for me, my examples were the ones that I saw on television. And these were all in the entertainment industry or in the sport industry. I work in the media field. I'm a part of a network with doctors, lawyers and everything. And we do these projects only to show you can be anything if you're willing to set your mind to it. I see it with my own daughter. My daughter is 14. When she grew up, we had the Black Barbies. Why did we have that? Because otherwise her idea of a princess is white. And you have to understand this is how it works. We imprint a lot of messages already at kids from a small age. So that's why representation matters. And I, I, I think uh, we think from, say, a white perspective, it's so logical that the world looks like it is as it is. Look at television, every, everything you see, uh, there are white people doing it. So it's, it's almost not imaginable, also for the listeners, how it is like if the world would look differently. There are some photographs, I don't know, there's some art projects showing a kid looking at a wall with only black dolls. And then people realize, oh, uh, but if that's what you can choose from, what does it mean for that kid? If you're not open to see what for impact this could be on your kid, then you don't understand representation. Matthias, uh, one of our questions was, is sports political? And I think we've conclusively answered that. But do you have any final kind of comments? Well, at the end, I was just thinking, you mentioned education at the primary school level already. I was just thinking, what can we do here at university? Uh, but that's something to discuss later. Irene? Uh, I was watching a uh, a show on Sky Sports called Tackling Racism, which is actually uh, co-created by a fellow Dane. Um, they had uh, Dr. Daniel Kilvington on the show, and he talks about how the issue in Britain about British Asians not getting allowed into top football opportunities. And the thought that came to me when we talked about representation was basically, he said, you cannot be what you can't see. Sure. Um, representation matters greatly and it's not just about to go on our discussion right it's not just about seeing black players and other players on the field but in leadership position ownership positions you say university in lecturing positions um, same story indeed right same story so more than just a workforce but an actual power position right decision making position teaching position is what I would add 
I cannot think of any better final words. So I just want to thank our listeners for sitting in on this conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as as we have because we are sitting here fascinated, eager to continue, but glad to have had you with us. Bye-bye. Racism in sports is more than skin deep. Sports presents a microcosm of our societies. We'd love to thank our guests, John and Irena, for their insights, and we look forward to several more episodes on sports over the next year. And we hope you will join us next time when we explore more of the outcomes and legacies of colonial practices that have shaped everyday lives here in the Netherlands and in Europe.